Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Picture a uh, student getting ready to take an exam. It's an important exam. The student has the opportunity to get all the answers to the exam. Study those answers and ace the test. So the student does that, gets the answers, no one else has them. Student memorizes the answers, takes the exam, gets an A. Nobody knows what happened. Did you do the right thing? Imagine somebody seeking a job. This person can put on her resume that she got a degree from a particular institution. That actually didn't happen, but she can put that on her resume and she can get her dream job. So she decides to do it. She puts it on the resume. Imagine a caregiver taking care of uh, an elderly person, very sick, and enduring a degree of suffering, and um, this caregiver has access to a medical professional who is willing to euthanize this patient and relieve this person of his or her pain. So, he does that. The person is put to death, relieved of all pain. Did they do the right thing? All of these scenarios that I'm presenting to you can be summed up by a phrase that you probably all heard before, which is this. The end justifies the means. Some people think this way. This is how they make their decisions, thinking that the end justifies the means. That is, that the action that you take in any given situation is morally justified if you achieve the desired result. Is that the way we should live? Is that a morally acceptable way to live? Is that a way to live that is acceptable as a Christian? I think we all have this temptation, don't we? We all see that there are ways to get what we want, and sometimes it's easier to do it in what to us might seem like an easy way, or an efficient way, or an expedient way, a creative way, a clever way. We can get to what we want, even when it's not God's way. Do we do, do, do we do this? Is this how we live? Do we take shortcuts? And that's what this passage in Genesis 16 is about this morning. We are going through a sermon series here on the life of Abraham. So this is described to us in the book of Genesis. Really, we're just going through the entire book of Genesis. We started back in verse 1, chapter 1, many months ago. Uh, now we're just concentrating on the life of this man, Abraham, called Abram in our text now, and we're considering here the uh, potential pitfall of taking shortcuts. There's a principle here that comes out in this text, which is that the way you do something is every bit as important and maybe more important than the results that you get. The way you do something is perhaps more important, at least just as important as the results that you get. We're going to see this come to light here in this story of Sarai, Abram, and Hagar. So, let's stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able to so. And I'm going to read the entire chapter, Genesis 16. <clears throat> now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Barrett. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Holy Spirit, please come and open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, let's look at this kind of idea of shortcuts, doing things our way instead of God's way, taking the easy way instead of the hard way. The first thing I want to show to you here this morning from the text, just admittedly, and let's just be honest, shortcuts are often very tempting. It's very tempting to want to do things the easy way, right? So let's look passage begins by telling us here in verse 1 that Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. Now, if you're new to the story, you might not see exactly why this is such a big deal. It's because back in chapter 12, God came to Sarai and Abram and said that you're going to have a, a child, and in fact, you're going to have many descendants, and your descendants are going to become a great nation, and you're going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This huge, grand magnificent promise that came from God to Sarai and Abram, but here it is ten years later, if you skip down to verse 3, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, so the promise was given right before they entered the land of Canaan, so that promise was given ten years ago, and here's Sarai, Abram's wife, no children. So what is she to do? She's starting to panic, and so she starts to think, I got a plan i got a way we can do this. Now, I know God promised that we were going to have a child, but 
I've got a plan, and here it is. And so in verses 1 and 2, she explains this plan. We learn that Sarai has a servant, the end of verse 1 there, named Hagar. She is from Egypt. Perhaps you recall back in chapter 12, there was a famine, and uh, Abram and Sarai went down into Egypt, spent some time there, probably acquired Hagar at that time, brought her back with them into the promised land. And Sarai speaks to her husband, Abram, in verse 2, and says this, here's, here's my idea. Um, <clears throat> the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, so go into my servant. It may, uh, if you go into my servant, then it could be that we can obtain children from her. So Sarai's idea is, I, I can give up my husband to this woman, and this woman, Hagar, and my husband can have relations with each other, and they can bear a child. Uh, presumably, Hagar is much younger than Sarai, more likely to conceive. And so in Sarai's mind, this is the solution to the problem, right? No, no, no biggie. Let's just do this, and we can get the promised child. Now, to you and me, this probably seems like kind of a, just a scandalous, a horrible idea. I mean, what, what woman would want to give her husband up to some other woman in order to have children? Uh, so we might look at Sarai with certain contempt here and just think, what is the matter with this woman? But I, I want us to pause and um, consider Sarai's situation a little more carefully, and we might have a little bit of sympathy for her. Um, concocting this plan. As I mentioned, it's been 10 years since the promise. It's a long time. She is 75 years old right now. It's not like she's more likely to have children, even though the promise is given to her that she will. And actually, in the culture of this day, these many hundreds of years ago, it was actually common practice for husbands to give up their wives, excuse me, for wives to give up their husbands to other women to have children. This would not be acceptable if a woman or a wife was able to provide children to a husband, but if the woman was not able to do that, it was very common for the husband to find a concubine to have relations and to bear a child. And if we look at this kind of more carefully, you might recall that when God spoke the promise to Abram and Sarai, God actually never specifically said that the child was going to come from Sarai. The promise was always made to Abram. Abram, you're going to have kids. You're going to have descendants. Your name is going to be great. The promise isn't made specifically to Sarai. So you can imagine how Sarai is thinking. I'm 75. It's been 10 years. Everybody else is doing this. And God didn't really give me this promise. He gave it to my husband, so maybe this is a good idea. See, what I'm trying to show you here is that the motive of Sarah here is actually good. What she wants to do is see God's promise fulfilled. That's her interest. And she's trying to figure out a way for this to happen. So her motive is good, but the method is bad. The end that she has in mind, let's have a child, is good, but the means that she chooses to accomplish that is, is bad. The whole passage is trying to show us here that the means to the end is important, that not just the results are important, but the way we go about achieving those results are also important. So Sarai here, we have sympathy for her, uh, even though this plan just seems crazy, but I would suggest also that maybe the one to blame even more is Abram. Abram has been on a 
a, a winning streak lately. You know, the last several chapters, he's, he's been doing really well. He didn't do so well back in chapter 12. Well, now is another falter here of Abram because we see uh, in verse 2, it says, Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has been married from bearing children. Go unto my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And then there at the very end of verse 2, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He listened to the voice of Sarai. Now that might bring to your memory a phrase that we have heard in the study of Genesis earlier. If we go all the way back to chapter 3 in the garden, do you remember when God spoke to Adam after the fall, after he ate the apple? God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and had eaten of the tree. Now we have the very same phrase in chapter 16, verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The implication here is that what Abram has done is a fatal mistake. Just like what Adam did was a fatal mistake in listening to his wife. So what Abram has done is a fatal mistake. Now husbands, slow down. This is not license for you to not listen to your wives. Husbands, listen to your wives. In fact, husbands, I think we just need to be honest and admit that their ideas are very often, more often than not, better than our ideas. And it takes a humble husband to acknowledge that and say, honey, you're right. We'll do it your way. A husband needs to be willing to do that. But husbands also need to be able to recognize when the wife's idea is not so good. It's not always that the wife's idea is better than the husband's. And here, the problem is that Abram is listening to the voice of his wife, apparently putting the opinion and the desires of his wife above what he knows his God wants him to do. And so he submits to what his wife has said here. He doesn't step up. What he should have done is said, no, this is a bad idea. God has promised that we're going to have a promised child, and we're going to wait until he provides. But he didn't do that. He passively submitted to what his wife desired. Ultimately, just as Adam is responsible in the garden, so is Abram responsible for what ultimately happens here in chapter 16. But in any case, I think we've got to say they're, they're both guilty. You know, Abram and Sarai both trying to take a shortcut, forgetting God's promises, relying on their ingenuity, on their cleverness, on their creativity. We're going to do this ourselves. That's, that, that's the problem here. And we can see and understand, I think, the temptation. And the temptation comes to us too, doesn't it, today? That we can be very tempted to want to take a shortcut, make it easy. Particularly when it comes to like spiritual maturity, growing in grace. Isn't it easy to maybe get a little frustrated that we're not more mature than we'd like to be? We want to take shortcuts we want to be a mature, respectable, honored Christian without doing the hard work of praying regularly, submitting yourself to God's Word, immersing yourself among God's people in the church, and walking by faith through suffering. That's how you mature as a Christian. Over the years, year after year after year, you're praying, you're reading the Bible, you're meditating, you're here on Sunday mornings. You're serving your brothers and sisters. And you continue to declare the goodness of God even when you go through hard times and trust that he has something good in the midst of it. That's how you grow. There are no shortcuts to spiritual growth and maturity. It doesn't happen in a hurry. 
It happens after a long, long time. So the temptation to us individually to maybe take shortcuts. Sometimes there's temptations that are presented to the church more broadly to take shortcuts. Sometimes churches think, well, you know, we can get more people in here if we just provide more entertainment, a little more levity, a little more laughing, a little more joking, a little more of what we see on TV and in the movies. Let's bring it into the sanctuary and we'll bring people in. That's a shortcut. Some Christians think ushering in the kingdom of God is by getting some kind of political leader in the White House, getting our guy, getting a good Republican conservative in the White House. And boy, that'll be the way to change everything and really grow the church and really change the nation. That's a shortcut, friends. That's not what God prescribes for the growth of His kingdom. Sometimes there's a temptation to soften the hard edges of the Scriptures, to not talk about sin, to not talk about hell, to not talk about spiritual disciplines. People don't like to hear that. Let's just hush it up. That's a shortcut. Sometimes there's a temptation to avoid those issues that might offend the sensibilities of our culture. And so we don't say anything. That's a shortcut. Shortcuts are tempting, friends, but to be resisted, as this passage is going to tell us, particularly as we look at the second point. Not only are shortcuts tempting, but they often create lots of problems. The Bible often teaches by giving very explicit, specific directions. Sometimes it's just very clear to see what the Bible says that we're supposed to do. But sometimes the Bible also teaches by giving us an example and then showing us the negative consequences that come from that example as a way of indicating that this is not something that is advisable. And that's what's happening here in the rest of chapter 16. So what Abram does is he follows through with his wife's idea. Verse 3 He takes Hagar, the Egyptian, and he has relations with her. It's spoken of in verse 4. And we see also that Hagar conceived. Plan is going just as Sarai wanted, right? Everything's working out fine. There's, There's a child. Ends justifies the means, right? Maybe that's what they were thinking. Doesn't matter what we're doing here in the in in the meantime, it's we're getting the result that we want. But what is the result? New problems, friends. Trouble, difficulty, chaos. This turns out to be an absolute train wreck, particularly with regard to personal relationships. First thing we see is this. Hagar gets turned against Sarai. Look at verse 4. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, that's Hagar, she looked with contempt on her mistress. The mistress is Sarai. Hagar has a a child, and she begins to get proud and haughty and self-righteous, and she looks down upon Sarai. Now, barrenness at this time was an absolute disgraceful condition in that particular culture. It was the worst situation that a single woman could find herself in, or any woman could find herself in. And so here's Hagar now kind of flaunting before Sarai that she had a child and Sarai didn't. The Hebrew phrase there is, uh, for contempt is uh, that Sarah was dishonorable in her eyes. Hagar is looking at Sarah with a certain amount of dishonor. And that leads to the next bit of trouble because that then sets Sarai against Abram. Verse 5, 
Look what she says. Sarah says to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, Sarah is saying, It's your fault, Abram. Now, we just said that, in a sense, it kind of is, that Abram bears responsibility, but Sarai is conveniently forgetting that this is her idea, suggesting that this is all Abram's fault. What we have is marital strife, tension, distance now between Abram and Sarai because Sarai is receiving this mistreatment from Hagar. But then, thirdly, we see that Abram and Sarai turn against Hagar. Looking at verse 6, Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Now remember, this servant, that's Hagar, is Abram's wife now. And yet Abram is saying, Sarah, you take her. You do with her what you want, your responsibility. Uh, Abram just won't do anything about it. He just passively resigns, turns her over to Sarai And then we get this phrase at the end of verse 6, Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. Now, we don't know exactly what this means. I mean, it could mean some kind of just verbal abuse. Maybe it involves some kind of physical abuse. I mean, Hagar is a slave, servant, slave in the household here. Whatever the case, the harshness with which Sarai treats Hagar leads Hagar to flee. It's so bad, she has got to get out of there, and she leaves. And so now we're seeing that this idea is not really working out as everybody intended. There's lots of personal conflict. There's lots of trouble. There's lots of strife. Friends, this is one of the reasons why every single Sunday we warn you about sin. Maybe when you come to church here at New Life, you think, man, these people are always talking about sin. So all I hear about is sin. Well, the reason why we talk about sin so much is not to steal your joy away from you. It's because we want to maximize your joy. Because there is no joy found in continuing in sinful rebellion against God. We, we want you to find joy in this life. Being obedient to God doesn't guarantee that everything's going to go well. But I'll tell you, if you live a life of sin, you're going to have trouble. We don't want that for you. Here's what John MacArthur says, I think sums it up well. The pleasure of sin is brief while the sorrow it produces lasts. The sorrow of repentance is brief while the joy it it produces lasts. And that's what we want for you. And this passage here is warning us by example. The shortcut is taken and things crumble and fall apart in the Abram and Sarai household. Let me take a moment just to mention something that that you may have noticed here and that I already referenced briefly, and that is that Hagar is now Abram's wife, which means Abram has two wives. (laughs) Abram is a polygamist. And so this is a question that is sometimes brought up when studying the Old Testament. Is polygamy permissible among Christians? Uh, It is true that it's very often practiced. If you look in the Old Testament, you see Jacob has multiple wives. David has multiple wives. Solomon has multiple wives. They're all polygamists. Abram, Jacob, and David in particular are highly regarded in the Old Testament. And it's true that there is no place in the Scriptures where polygamy is explicitly condemned. That's true. 
But friends, when we look to the created order, we look to see how God created humanity. He created a man named Adam, and he gave Adam one wife. And that is a pattern that is set up for all of Scripture. And in fact, what we see, as I mentioned earlier, that by example, we can see how unrecommended and unadvisable polygamy is. It always results in some kind of disorder. It always results in trouble. Every time you see it show up in the Old Testament, it's in a negative light. A guy named Andres Kostenberger says it this way, the Bible is clear that individuals in the history of Israel who abandoned God's design of monogamy and participated in polygamy did so contrary to the Creator's plan and ultimately to their own detriment. Not only is polygamy nowhere in the Old Testament spoken of with approval, but many passages uphold monogamy as the continuing ideal. So if any of you husbands are thinking of acquiring another life, a wife, let, let me recommend strongly against that. Uh, certainly not a problem we find in this culture, but it is a problem when people read the Old Testament and say, why does it seem that polygamy is not condemned? I think implicitly it is and not according to God's design for marriage. So, shortcuts often create problems. And then lastly, we're going to see this, that shortcuts are always seen by our all-knowing God. Sometimes we think we're going to take the easy way and we do it behind the scenes. We think nobody sees and maybe nobody else does see, but God sees. God sees everything. And he sees the shortcuts that we take. So let's pick up the rest of the story here. We see verse 6, Hagar flees. Uh, Verse 7 says she's heading down towards Shur. So that's kind of on the way to Egypt. She's probably trying to get back home to Egypt. And she stops at this spring of water. Verse 7. And... um, Not sure why she stops here. Maybe she's worn out. Maybe she's weary. Maybe she's overcome with grief. Got to think about how vulnerable Hagar is in this situation. Just pause to think about Hagar. Hagar is pregnant. She's single. She's a foreigner. She's a slave. And she's totally alone. This is what the shortcut has produced. This vulnerable, needy woman. Nobody notices her. Nobody sees her. Nobody's going after her except God. Because God sees. Look what it says in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The angel found her. The angel of the Lord was pursuing her. The angel of the Lord was looking for Hagar, and found her because God has a heart for the vulnerable. God has a heart for the needy. God has a heart for the forgotten. God notices the ones that no one else notices. And that's what he's doing as he pursues Hagar here. This is what we read in Psalm 113. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, looks far down on the heavens and the earth, he sees everything? And he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. That's what God is doing here, pursuing Hagar. Now, you might look at this and say, wait a minute, it says the angel of the Lord. It doesn't say the Lord. You're saying that God pursued Hagar, but this says the angel pursued Hagar. What's up? Well, skip down to verse 13. 
And notice what Hagar says. Hagar calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Hagar recognizes that through this angel, it is God himself speaking to her in the form of an angel. This angel is God himself speaking, taking the form of an angel, just in the same way, a similar way as God will eventually take the form of a man in the person of Jesus Christ when he enters the world through the incarnation. We sometimes call this uh, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Pre-incarnate, that just means before he was born. Before Jesus was born as a man, he's existed eternally as the second person of the Trinity, and so now he comes pursuing Hagar, appearing as an angel and speaking to her in compassion and grace. And so if you stay there at verse 13, it's very instructive. She calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar recognizes that God cares for her. God is looking after her when nobody else is. She knows she can trust God to care for her needs, to pursue her to care for her, to love her, to provide for her, and she trusts him to do that. This might be the first time Hagar feels that she's ever really been seen by anyone, noticed by anyone. And here's God pouring out his grace and compassion on this woman. I have some friends who noticed this in uh, in their lives, uh, a young woman who came from a very difficult background, had struggled in many different ways, just very unusual challenges in this young girl's life, and these friends noticed her and saw her, saw her in her anguish and sought to care for her, and there was a time when they provided a birthday party for her, and when she received these gifts and this birthday party, she just broke down and cried and said, no one's ever done this for me. Can you imagine A girl growing up in a household and never having anybody ever give her a birthday party? Talk about feeling unnoticed, unseen. And yet here's God, seeing the needy, valuing her, honoring her, seeing her. Friends, do you have eyes to see those that nobody else sees? Do you notice those who are overlooked? Will you reach out to them and care for them? as God has cared for Hagar. There's so much more to say in this text that we don't have time to get into. But what we find that God does here is he goes to Hagar and he commands Hagar in verse 9, go back. After God or during this occasion where God is showing grace and compassion to to Hagar, he also has a command. You need to go back, verse 9, you need to go back to your mistress, you need to submit to Sarai, and Hagar does that. But then there's also a promise. God gives a promise to Hagar here. Verse 10, God says to Hagar, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for for multitude. I mean, doesn't that ring a bell? I mean, that's a very similar process that God, or a promise that God has been giving to Abram all this time. I'm going to multiply your descendants. Now God is giving the very same command to Hagar. And the very first descendant is told here in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're pregnant, you're going to bear a son, you're going to call his name Ishmael. 
So Ishmael now is going to be born to Hagar. The very end of the passage tells us in verse 15 that that's exactly what happened. Hagar bears Ishmael, and from Ishmael now are going to come all of these descendants. But something interesting is said about this guy named Ishmael in verse 12. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. His hand is against everyone. Everyone's hand is against him. He's going to dwell over against all his kinsmen. In other words, this is going to be a guy who is super contentious. He doesn't get along with anyone. I mean, he's against people, and people are against him, and he's even against his kinsmen, his, his family members. It's a person filled with hostility. And I think it would be very interesting to unpack the fulfillment of that through Ishmael, because later on in Genesis, we're going to see that he has 12 sons, and there's a lot of talk about how the descendants of Ishmael perhaps have landed in the Arab nations now, and there's a connection perhaps between Ishmael and the religion of Islam. Definitely don't have time to look into that this morning, but I think I'm going to do that next week. I think we'll pause, take a little detour, and kind of try to flesh that out a little more. The descendants of Ishmael, uh, who are they, and how does that have relevance for us today? Um, so next week, we'll, we'll do that. But as I conclude here, I want you to see, and this is very important to notice, is that Ishmael, friends, is not the promised child. Ishmael is not the one that God had in mind. In other words, the shortcut didn't work. And Abram and Sarai have to continue to wait. And the reason why, friends, is because salvation is never achieved by the clever ingenious, creative work of mankind. It is only achieved by the miraculous, gracious work of God on His terms and in His way. You and I cannot creatively get ourselves to heaven by figuring out ways to please God apart from the way God has provided for us to be saved, and that's in the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only option we have. You can work hard, you can come up with all sorts of ideas, you can think of things that no one else has thought of to try to make yourself right before God. They will all fail if you do not place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. The good thing with Jesus is that He took no shortcuts. He entered the world when the time had fully come, it says in Galatians 4. Not a moment before, not a moment after. He did it just as the Father planned. He obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law, every bit of it. No shortcuts. He didn't excuse a few commands here and there. All of the law he fulfilled. He died on a cross, even though Peter came to him and said, Jesus, I don't think you have to do that. There's an easier way. There's a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus is going to do it right. And he's risen from the dead in his glorious resurrection, accomplishing the ends, the salvation of all of his people, and doing it entirely by proper means, obedience to the Father, and in accordance with his redemptive plan, which we are seeing unfolding here in the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Our God, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of a redeemer. We thank you, Lord, that you have done everything right on our behalf. Uh, Lord, help us to trust you even when we don't 
see how things are going to work out? Would you please protect us from that temptation to want to do things our way and not your way? And thank you, Lord, that indeed you have done it all for us in the person of Jesus so that we can rest in you and your gospel. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.